Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katherine Shen. As far as holidays go, Valentine's Day is pretty uniquely adored or abhorred. While some love it, many love to hate it. This hour, we'll hear from a writer and poetry lover who has meditated on the potential of this day and the many forms love takes. But first, one expert is here to help us unpack the hidden history of Valentine's Day. Beyond the pressures of consumer culture or any outsized emphasis on romantic love, she says there's been a yearning for something more sincere from the very beginning. Joining us now is Elizabeth Nelson. She's an associate professor of history at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. What are your feelings about this complicated holiday? Are you celebrating in some way? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Valentine's Day is so interesting to me because it's gone through so much shape-shifting throughout history. Elizabeth, I want to start with the name of the day. Tell us what's the most interesting thing about it. Well, St. Valentine was a real saint. Um, He was martyred, we think, around 270 Common Era, but he has no connection at all to lovers or anything like that. And there are several different St. Valentines, actually, and one of them is the patron saint of epileptics. So the fact that his name is attached to this holiday is largely coincidental, I think. That's quite a huge coincidence, considering we're we're still talking about this particular saint or multiple saints today. And there are also links to Lupercalia as well, which is an ancient Roman festival. Can you share us um, what you know about that? Sure. So one of the things that's inherent in the celebration of Valentine's Day, you mentioned that a moment ago, is people's sort of obsession with the history. And uh, with a lot of these folk holidays, the history is sort of lost in the shrouds of time. So people are in a sense inventing histories for Valentine's Day, you know, uh, kind of right back into the 18th century or beyond. Um, Lupercalia was a very ancient Roman holiday that was celebrated on the 15th of February in the cave where Romulus and Remus were supposed to be uh, suckled by the wolf. And it was a uh, fertility rite in the sense that goats were sacrificed and then the skins of the goats were made into long strips. And then the young men who were part of the Lupercai, the the members of the the religious uh, group would run through the streets of Rome, whipping uh, people, mostly women with these strips of goat skin to make them more fertile. Uh, Interestingly, this is a practice that still goes on in some Central European uh, countries like the Czech Republic on Easter, where there's a tradition of whipping people with not goatskin, but sticks on Easter for fertility. Um, So there's nothing really in Lupercalia as the celebration as the Romans had it 
that has anything to do with courtship or love in particular or drawing lots. But uh, sort of in the middle of the 18th century, maybe even a little bit earlier, but that's the sort of place where I first start to see people really thinking about this, it gets collapsed into a kind of a holiday that is a tribute to Pan and to Juno and to Venus. These are all kind of things that are lumped onto Lupercalia. Uh, and so people decide that it is the reason that we have Valentine's Day because there is this tradition in the Catholic Church of replacing pagan holidays with saints' days. And St. Valentine's Day was February the 14th, so close to Lupercalia. Um, and so they like this idea that it is actually from this ancient um, Roman holiday. But uh, as far as we know, there really isn't any connection to that holiday and there really isn't any connection to the actual St. Valentine, aside from the fact that his day happens to also coincide with the day that in folk wisdom uh, is the day that birds choose their mates for the year. So that may be the real derivation of why we celebrate this holiday the way we do. Well, I find it so fascinating that the fact that there is no literal connection, but here we are, you know, thousands of hundreds and thousands of years later, we're, we're talking about this. And so you mentioned sort of like the bloody history of Valentine's Day. It, it was a lot more violent and, and bloodier than we know now today. Uh, but there's also a story that originated in France. Can you talk to us about that? Well, so yeah, so France, the, France and Germany are big celebrators of Valentine's Day in the in the Middle Ages, um, and then it's less celebrated there now. But in France, there's this story, and I think this is a true story, although I I have never done any research on it. That the tradition of drawing lots in France was very public, and then yeah, the person who drew the lot of of a young woman could expect from that young woman. Um, a beautiful dinner, and then they would have this dinner, and then if he, she wasn't to his liking, she, he could spurn her and choose somebody else. And so at the end of the week, all the women who'd been spurned would then get together in the public square and burn all the people who'd spurned them in effigy in a big bonfire in the middle of the square. And uh, uh, so this was got, kind of got out of hand in some French cities, and so finally the French officials outlaw this celebration. Um, but that's one of the things that's interesting about Lupercalia also is that there are uh, a number of kind of early scholars who suggest that Lupercalia is as much connected to things like Mardi Gras and Carnival um, as it is to Valentine's Day. And so the overlapping of this idea of Carnival and Valentine's Day um, was something that, uh, you know, we don't necessarily have, haven't hung on to that particular history, but it does seem kind of apt. And literature, I think, has played a huge part in many of the holidays that we celebrate in the modern times. And you've mentioned uh, Geoffrey Chaucer has been credited with the first record of Valentine's Day as a celebration that's more specific to the love that we may be more familiar today. What are your thoughts about that? So Chaucer is, uh, in the Canterbury Tales, he talks about Valentine's Day as the day that birds choose their mates. So that's one of the places where we know that story but one of the things that's interesting about Chaucer is that he was friends with and a great admirer um, of a French poet, uh, uh, Oton Grandson, who wrote about Valentine's Day also. And uh, Chaucer actually credits him with the inspiration uh, for some of his poetry. So 
there is uh, Chaucer's the first poet maybe in English, but not necessarily the first poet uh, in French to talk about St. Valentine's Day. And so we've been talking about these sort of disconnections of history, but yet it connects to this holiday that we know today and just talking about poetry and literature. So why do you think we rely so heavily on these fictional depictions today? Well, so there is a great interest in the 18th century in England in sort of the recovery of the folk history of England. So there's a historian, Henry Brand, who writes a book in 1725 that sort of is credited as one of the earliest works on this. And he talks about Valentine's Day in that book. And then another um, historian, actually the the main uh, librarian of the British Library, uh, republishes a manuscript by a third person that incorporates Bourne's work into this very influential kind of history of uh, of folk traditions in the uh, United Kingdom. Uh, and then this history that um, is in these books gets recycled in not only popular histories of Valentine's Day, but in footnotes to Chaucer, in footnotes to Shakespeare, where Valentine's Day also appears. So you'll see in these early editions of Chaucer and Shakespeare from the late 18th and, and early 19th centuries, basically verbatim the same history that they've copied out of this book that's the com- combined work uh, of Bourne and this other historian, John Brand, um, and they just, it gets recycled and recycled. So in a sense, we aren't really rediscovering the history of Valentine's Day. We're recycling a version of it that was first published about 1810. And I was going to say, why do you think we are so fascinated by the history? You know, whether or not it's a literal, if it's truth or if it's fiction, or why do you think we have such a fascination with it? Well, I think we're always looking for the time that Valentine's Day was sincere, was authentic, that we uh, characterize ourselves right in the current time as being sort of too cynical for Valentine's Day. The irony is that people are saying that they're too cynical for Valentine's Day, you know, in the 1840s also. So we look to these histories as a way of, in a sense, recovering a period of time when people celebrated Valentine's Day in a way that feels appealing, that feels sort of uncommercial or above that kind of uh, sort of cynicism about love. And so these histories provide that kind of connection to the past. I mean, I think one of the reasons that Lupercalia comes into the story is that uh, St. Valentine, of course, is a Catholic saint. And so as uh, England and Britain in general, particularly England, becomes more and more a Protestant country, the saints sort of hold sway much less. And so this other ancient history sort of substitutes in uh, for that history of the saints. The Catholic Church maintains, you know, from its earliest discussion of this, that St. Valentine has nothing to do with Valentine's Day. But so this other history, the Lupercalia, the birds choosing their mates, we like this because it sort of anchors this holiday in something that isn't defined by how much you spent on your Valentine or whether or not you got one. You've been hearing from Elizabeth Nelson. She's an associate professor of history at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and she'll be staying with us. We'll pick up this conversation about the history of Valentine's Day after a quick break. What are your traditions? You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're digging into the hidden history of Valentine's Day and examining how the tension between commercialization and sincerity that we're familiar with has been a constant. And back with us to have this discussion is Elizabeth Nelson. She's an associate professor of history at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Elizabeth, your expertise is really focused on the 19th century and a lot of what's been going on from that day to this point on. Why is the Victorian era such a pivotal moment in this story? Well, in the 19th century, you really get a shift uh, in Valentine's Day away from the idea of giving gifts or choosing someone, you know, based on the idea of birds choosing their mates for a whole year to the the practice of giving uh, cards, which is, of course, how we celebrate Valentine's Day today. So there is a kind of explosion in the idea that a Valentine could be not the person himself or herself, but this card that could be exchanged between people and in some cases exchanged anonymously. So it sort of adds a whole new element uh, of mystery to the holiday. Sometimes people like this mystery, sometimes they don't. And so you start to get Valentine manufacturers making these very elaborate uh, Valentines. At first, they are actually not in the shape of the heart at all, but kind of rectangle like a piece of paper with very elaborate lace and uh, little images of cupids and other kind of Valentine iconography that are, you know, in a sense, a new kind of consumer good, sort of an exciting thing uh, to to buy and appeals to a kind of uh, Victorian interest in the representation of sentiment as well as, of course, the feeling of sentiment. Well, and it's also an era where there's a lot of change. And you mentioned that this is something that people can start buying. Can you explain how much the development of industry is woven into this history of the holiday? Well, it's very important. So the the actual quality of the paper matters a lot. That most Valentines before about 18, you know, end of 18, the 1840s, maybe 1849, 1850, are imported from uh, Europe, primarily Germany and England, because the quality of the paper there is much higher. So um, you don't get paper manufacturers in the, in the United States making this very fancy lace paper. 
So you have an entrepreneur named Esther Howland, who's the daughter of a stationer in Worcester, Massachusetts, who gets interested in Valentine's Day and decides that she can make even more beautiful Valentines than these imported ones that make a little money at the same time. So her father starts to import paper, um, uh, lace paper and all these fancy things. And so she starts a little Valentine business in the parlor of their house. Uh, and so she starts to assemble these Valentines with this uh, fancy paper that he's imported. And so that's sort of initially what Valentine's look like. And then in the period after the Civil War, you started to get another important technological change in the ability to print color called chromolithography. And so then you can start to print um, Valentine's in color, all kinds of things. Uh, and then there's another, Worcester, Massachusetts is a big hub of Valentine's at day business in the 19th century. And another man, George Whitney, starts a Valentine manufacturing business there with uh, where he makes these uh, Valentines with chromolithography. And there, then we start to see things not only uh, in bright colors, but also, you know, there's uh, the kind of, they have the capacity to, to cut in very accurate technological ways, Valentines into the shapes um, that we're more familiar with, particularly that big red heart. So it takes a little while for the technology to catch up with people's desire for the celebration, um, but it does really change what the Valentine looks like uh, in, in ways that, um, you know, make it look like that familiar red heart, but also we're very sentimental about those old fashioned Valentines because we think they look so beautiful. Well, you mentioned manufacturing. I don't necessarily connect manufacturing with romance, right? Or what, whatever that love is. Um, but do you think that at the heart of this resistance to inauthenticity and the market that you see as a thread, that there is a yearning for something more sincere, especially with so much commercialization of, of holidays that we know today, are we yearning for something different or back to the origin story of love? Or what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think we are yearning for something sincere. And I think that Valentine's Day is kind of a double-edged sword because sometimes if you get the Valentine that you want from the person you want, then it feels like the epitome of sincerity. If you don't get that Valentine, then it feels like the absolute opposite. So we're, we're constantly on that knife's edge between what's possible and what we hope will happen and what doesn't. And so uh, we tend to take a, a kind of you know, self-preserving sort of cynical position and say, oh, it doesn't mean anything until we get a Valentine that we like. And then we decide that it is sincere. And the same thing is true for 19th century celebrants. There are, oh, there are lots of stories in Godey's Ladies Book, which is a very famous women's magazine from the 19th century, in a sense, cautioning people about getting too excited about Valentine's Day and yet popularizing the holiday with lots of stories about people who get Valentines, sometimes anonymous Valentines, um, where in the end, the story does sort of work out and bring people together, but sometimes the path is a little twisted. So I think we remain optimistic about Valentine's Day, but we are worried about the ways in which sort of the possibilities of insincerity are built in, especially to anonymous Valentines. Well, and you mentioned uh, cut paper earlier. We're going to launch into another conversation about the cut flower industry because you you do have some insight on what why flowers are somewhat unique to Valentine's Day, and actually 
uh, Mother's Day as well. Can you share with us what you know? Sure. So flowers actually have every flower has its own meaning. And uh, in the 19th century, these dictionaries called flower dictionaries were very popular where you could look up the meaning of all the different flowers in theory on the idea that you could send a bouquet that had a secretly coded message in the flowers themselves. This is limited in the sense that in February, of, at least in the United States, falls in a pretty dark, cold period of the year, and it's not really the beginning of spring in most parts, and so most people don't have real access to flowers uh, in the wintertime until we get the, the beginning of the floral industry, which is more sort of late 19th century, and then um, the, the florists sort of pile onto this existing commercial holiday, the first holiday where that's really... Um, where there's sort of uh, tension there is around Mother's Day, which is started by a woman who loves her mother. And the white carnation was her mother's favorite flower. So she encourages everybody to wear a white carnation, you know, sort of boutonniere uh, as a tribute to their own mother. And then the floral industry gets uh, right on board and says, well, you don't need just a one white carnation. How about a whole bouquet of white carnations? Or how about a whole bouquet of white carnations and six other flowers. And so this woman who starts Mother's Day is horrified by the commercialization of this and tries to undo the whole thing, tries to shift the celebration from her point of view to a little white button. Anyway, she fails. The floral industry really pretty much runs Mother's Day uh, even to this day. And Valentine's Day is similar too, uh, that once they realize that flowers can be a present for holidays like that, Valentine's Day is sort of the perfect target as well. And that's probably where we get this tradition of sending a dozen red roses that those roses uh, that we associate so strongly with Valentine's Day are hybrid tea roses that don't really even exist uh, until the you know 1870s. So, and they're, they're generally grown in a hothouse, right? In a greenhouse. Uh, so they're, you can't pick them in your garden in February. So that's another way that we start to see um, these new industry, industries uh, climbing onto the commercial platform that the card industry has already created. And there's lots of discussion in the trade magazines uh, for florists about how you should be selling flowers, not containers, and don't get lulled into the idea that the container is more important than the flowers. And so these trade magazines have lots of advice for florists about how to make a lot of money on Valentine's Day. Well, considering my mom is not a huge fan of flowers, so I don't have that problem over here. <laughs> but I want to ask, you know, how is this flowers, the idea of flowers symbolic of this larger tension in Valentine's Day? Well, I think the, the sort of the largest tension in the 19th century, and I think we still share this, is this idea that you're spending a lot of money on this ephemeral thing that doesn't last. Um, that's why is it just one day? that people express their love this way. So in some ways it's, uh, we're caught between the anticipation and the disappointment uh, uh, that the holiday embodies. And so the flowers themselves, which are sort of beautiful and yet, um, you know, die in the vase in such a short time, seem a little sort of uncomfortably symbolic um, of our hopes and fears about Valentine's Day. Well, just you mentioning anticipation, disappointment, it's, that's, pretty, that's pretty sharp and incredible, and I'm sure it resonates with a lot of people, especially with these holidays that we are so familiar with. And so sort of related, so much 
of this history shows that loving to hate the holiday is kind of part of the tradition now? Or is this belief that there was something more pure and authentic than we know than we have now? Is that what keeps us coming back or straying away from it? I think it is. I mean, I think that's why we recycle the this history of Valentine's Day that was really written, you know, several hundred years ago, that we haven't changed that history very substantially at all. We love the idea that there used to be uh, an authentic folk holiday where people exchanged gifts. Samuel Pepys, uh, who's a, a, an English diarist uh, from the 1600s, writes about it in his diary. We love his discussion of, you know, sort of, he does it not in a romantic way, he sort of talks about all the gifts he has to give people and, and but in a, in a way that seems to us really sweet, right? And that we're always sort of looking um, for confirmation that the idea that romantic love is the underpinning of this very important, uh, you know, institution, the family uh, uh, is, that that's a good thing. Um, and so we, we are, you know, uncertain about that perhaps in the tensions of our own real lives. And so it's nice to, to imagine um, that there was a past in which these things were uncomplicated. I mean, we tend to look back and idealize the Victorians for this, but the irony is the Victorians are looking back and idealizing the 18th century or the 17th century um, themselves. So there is no real golden moment, but we're really invested in that idea of a golden moment. It feels a little bit of uh, grass is always greener on the other side, except for in this case, we're talking about time and history. And do you think there's a comparison to another very big holiday to Christmas, uh, thinking about these complaints of not doing it right, and you've got the anticipation and disappointment, and it's also another holiday where offerings of love meet the market, so to speak? Yeah, and the development of Christmas as we celebrate it happens uh, almost simultaneously with the development of Valentine's Day, that the practices of gift giving and the discussions about whether these gifts are sincere really come out of this 19th century practice uh, of celebrating Christmas that is largely mimicking the way that Queen Victoria celebrated Christmas uh, in, in England because she's married to Prince Albert, who's German Christmas and the Christmas tree is a German tradition. And so Victoria kind of brings these traditions into Buckingham Palace and Americans who are, uh, as we are now, we were then obsessed with British royalty um, in the sense are interested in these traditions in part because uh, of Victoria. And they're all, but they're tied into that same um, tension and anxiety about what it means to celebrate what is supposed to be an ancient folk holiday, religious holiday, by buying things in the marketplace, which is something that 19th century people are very anxious about what that means. Um, just as we are, in a sense, anxious, although we might describe ourselves as cynical rather than anxious, that, you know, that buying stuff isn't really the best way to show people that you care, or that people aren't very good at buying stuff that shows us that they care about us. Well, and then I was going to say, speaking of buying things, and we've been talking about, you know, what started from this idea of love to buying cars to manufacturing. I want to ask, especially since your expertise is in this era, what are some of the symbols we would see on cards or gifts during the Victorian times? You mentioned that spoons are gifts, gloves were also given, 
and I think this was before cards were a huge thing. Can you explain or break us, or, you know, break it down what those uh, what those symbols mean? Sure. So the glove is um, a, a a kind of Valentine gift. I think in part because um, the idea is there's a, a, a passage in Shakespeare that talks about you know how the the the, the person who's giving the speech I've forgotten which character it is wishes that he were the glove on the hand of his beloved because then he could touch her face. So just as we like the idea that there are these kind of literary connections to Valentine's Day, um, people in the past like this too. And the idea of the glove, right, is that it's sort of this, we don't think of it this way as an intimate piece of clothing because the hand uh, is such an intimate uh, part of the body for people in the 17th and 18th century. So that the glove is in that sense, a very um, personal kind of gift. Um, spoons, I think, uh, although in the 19th century, people decide that spoons are a traditional Valentine's gift. I haven't found as much discussion of spoons in the earlier period. Um, so it may be that in part people are, again, inventing these traditions uh, of gifts because they seem uh, somehow, I mean, you can buy a spoon, obviously, but it seems somehow separate from or a more real gift than this this flimsy little card that will only last a day or two. And we've been talking a lot about the different kinds of love. Can you explain a little bit more about how romantic love was actually something that is a critique versus something that people want to celebrate during the Victorian well, so romantic Romantic love is kind of dangerous, right? Because the idea of romantic love, right? I mean, if we think about this through Romeo and Juliet is that you, you know, you you see someone, your eye strings tangle, that you immediately know that this person is the person for you, that it's a very intense bond. But marriage for most people in the 19th century and the 18th century too, is really an economic relationship that, that women don't work outside the home very much, um, certainly not middle-class women, and that you need to marry somebody, not just who you uh, are necessarily kind of romantically attached to, but who can really support you. So there's a tension between this idea of wanting that emotional connection and the sort of pragmatic reality that um, being married to somebody is really about efficiently running a household that can support a family. So women aren't really supposed to fall in love with men until after men have already proposed marriage to them because you don't want to kind of be out there on a limb with the wrong guy who turns out to be either a confidence man or not able to support you in the way that you want. And, you know, this is the reality of lots of marriages in the 19th century is that men uh, are not as reliable as many women hope. And so there is, in fact, a very interesting world of, of work that women do, you know, in this realm of sentimentalism that they describe as duty so they can put food on the table for their kids when their husbands are off marauding around or, you know, drinking or abandoning them. So the, the tension in marriage is, is quite intense and quite uneven. And so romantic love suggests this very even relationship that the kind of practical reality of life doesn't always support and also it gives women a kind of autonomy that fathers, to be quite frank, really weren't interested in letting them have, uh, that it interferes with the kind of traditional structure, which is, in a sense, 
not only does the person you marry have to ask your father for his for your for your hand, but he your father has to actually agree to that, and that's more important than what you think. Um, this seems really odd to us because that's not how we imagine marriage anymore. But but in you know the 19th century when Valentine's Day is becoming a big commercial holiday, that tension is right at the center, and you actually see. Uh, lots of comic Valentines commenting on that, that they even have Valentines that look like banknotes, that this kind of metaphor of the marriage market is is more than a metaphor. So we got about 30 seconds left, but I want to ask you real quick, after studying this subject, what are, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? Well, it's, you know, I think I would just come back to what you say, which is that I started studying the subject, in a sense, to prove that Valentine's Day was just as rotten as I thought it was. And I guess I, in some ways, uh, succeeded in that, but yet it remains fascinating to me and I, I can't give it up. You know, that is the perfect note to end this on. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth Nelson is the Associate Professor of History at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Catherine. Really fun to talk to you. After a quick break, we'll hear from one writer about how the pressure around romantic love lives on and the ways we can redefine expressions of love to meet our own needs. You can join the conversation and find us on Facebook on and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we've gone back in time to explore how various renditions of Valentine's Day throughout history have skewed what might be a celebration of the deeper love of each other, instead limiting it to romantic love. How do these misconceptions and pressures still apply today? How have they morphed? One writer has considered these questions. Joining us now is Lindsay Wisher. She's a freelance writer who's been published by the Catholic Post, Plowshares blog, where she writes book reviews, and the Stanford-based Verily. She joins us now through Zoom. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Catherine. You can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Lindsay, uh, talk to us about your relationship with writing. You're a blogger, but also a poet. How did you come to um, be drawn to creative writing? Yeah, it's been a place for me where I can more honestly express um, my feelings. I find that in the act of writing, I often come to the conclusions of what I want to say and what I'm thinking about. I think sometimes language goes a little too fast for me and sometimes it's in that writing process that I can distill um, what I'm thinking about. I also find writing to be a supremely hopeful act, um, just a place to uncover the hope that I don't so easily find when I when I speak. I love that because we were just having a conversation about writing pen to paper and how that slows down the process. So I love that you mentioned that. Um, that's helpful to you. And so we discover that limericks and poetry are so central to Valentine's and love letters are also tied symbolically to, uh, to the holiday. So as a writer and a poet, why do you think that is? I think when people are writing about love, they want to elevate their speech in some way. 
um, express it perhaps in a way that um, normal prose, um, it's, it's a little bit different. It's a, it's a little bit, um, I don't know, like a higher kind of form of talking about things. And I also think that poetry and the poetic and even like the words in love letters um, allow you again to slow down and really think about what you love about um, the person you're writing to. And we also just heard from Elizabeth Nelson, an associate professor of history at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, who spoke about the importance of detaching our ideas of romantic love and love when we think about the history of this holiday. So during the 19th century version of Valentine's Day, she says, was really trying to puzzle out all the difficulties and pitfalls of love being romantic. And so with that in mind, Lindsay, how does this disproportionate focus on romantic love live on from your perspective? Yeah, well, I think it comes down to a language problem at first, because we only have one word for love in at least spoken um, English. Um, you know, I can say I love my mom and I love donuts, and we know that those aren't the same types of love, but we don't really have a way of distinguishing them. And so I think what happens when we don't have any way to distinguish the types is that there's kind of a disproportionate um, like focus on romantic love. It's kind of presented, at least in um, movies and media, as kind of like that that one relationship that we are um, all just trying to, to get to, you know. Um, and I think the sad thing is that um, our other relationships, you know, the love that we share with family members or friends kind of falls by the wayside um, and, and isn't as honored. That's such a great point. I think um, I, I was just having this chat with uh, our producers earlier that it actually blew my mind, this question of romantic love that we've been so sort of conditioned, if you will, that that love is just romantic, but it's really not. So my mind is just completely blown at this moment that we're questioning this. And I love the question. So just curious, you know, what's your take on this need to detach romantic love and love more broadly? Yeah, well, I'm always brought back to how people celebrated Valentine's Day with me when I was growing up. My family always included me in the holiday, so I never felt on the outside of um, a holiday that I think as adults we start to feel like, wow, this is like kind of like a singles awareness day. Like I just don't feel included in this and if I don't have a significant other and what I think, though, what really hit it home for me was middle school. Um, again, another kind of Valentine's Day celebration, but um, our seventh and eighth grade teacher made us, each of the middle schoolers, write on heart-shaped paper, no less, um, compliments to each other. And to me, that really opened up Valentine's Day to a different way of connecting with people. I, I really loved that ask to stop and look at the people in my life. Many of these people in my class, I didn't choose um, <laughs> to be my class. I wasn't friends with all of them, but to, to stop and discover the good that was in each person. And so as I'm thinking about Valentine's Day, I see it as a very, as a holiday that offers a lot of room for creativity and flexibility um, in our traditions around it. 
I think that's wonderful, too, um, just that different mindset. And, and you mentioning middle school just reminded me that our way of creativity when I was in high school was uh, all the people who were single decided to wear black, myself included. So that's mm-hmm. that's very outside the box, like, uh, you know, when we were in, when we were in high school. Um, so. So in terms of, you know, I think it's a different thought process um, across the board, especially with popular culture and media that has such a huge influence on this sort of manifestation. What's been your experience with emotional regulation around these expectations and narratives of what love should be? Yeah, well, I've just been really struck lately by um, kind of those classic rom-coms, like you've got mail and while you were sleeping and things like that, um, probably from like the 90s. Um, And just looking at those movies as an adult, really discovering as I went that there are these kind of lessons embedded that people are trying to teach us about romantic love. Um, I think in while you were sleeping, there was this concept of the lean. Um, If you were into someone, you kind of like leaned toward them. And um, I ended up just kind of being a little bit interested in if people watched these movies and thought, huh, my life doesn't really look like the life that um, the people in the movie are having. So maybe I don't really know how to do love very well. Um, And so I've just been kind of meditating as I've been going on through life about, I wonder if there's as many ways to express love as there are people in the world Um, I think the problem with these rom-coms is that it kind of limits our concepts of of love, romantic and otherwise, um, to really fantasy. I mean, you you think of how how small of a time frame they show and how exciting it all is all the time. And that just isn't real life. I love that you mentioned that because there is a lot of aspects to it that's very limiting. And and also you mentioned 90s rom-com. That's a very specific era era and Mm -hmm. with a very specific vibe, right? And it seems like this era of of romantic comedies have defined what love should be. So I'm curious to hear, how do you define love? Oh, great question. I really like... um... Uh, Thomas Aquinas's definition, which is a willing the good of another person. Um, I think that that really embodies um, for me what love is because I like, I think it allows both the ideas of loving someone in a romantic relationship, but also in a platonic relationship and wanting what's best for the other person um, and kind of acting toward that good as well. I think that's a entirely new way of seeing Valentine's Day that we're we're doing here, and and you know, we, I think we're going across generations really talking about '90s rom coms and and having this this chat at this moment. And I feel like in a way, it's it's sort of like practicing internal healing could also be a way someone might choose to celebrate this season of love with compassion. Uh, what's your own journey of self discovery been like? Yeah. Um... I think I'm someone who is very sensitive to the noise that I find kind of all around me in society. And and I, I kind of mean the literal noise of all the um all the news, all all the reactions to news. There's just so much we can take in from the society around us. But I I also experience a lot of internal noise, like all my thoughts 
that kind of I'll gather in my head and um, and you, you know I think we all are very familiar with the inner critic and the inner commentator and um, I think my own journey especially with this particular holiday has been when I am able to step out of that space that's all in my head um, and to orient myself toward other people. I find that I, I am happier. And I, I think what I want to be sure I say is um, I, I don't necessarily recommend like for Valentine's Day spending it all online and seeing what people are doing. I really do think there may be for some of us a call to just kind of step away so that we have a little bit of time either with ourselves or people in real life. But I know one year, uh, this is by aging myself a little, but um, I uh, asked people on my Facebook to, if I could tell them something kind about them um, for Valentine's Day. And um, I got a lot of response on that. And it was such a good practice for me again, because we know that the Facebook world or any of the social media worlds, not everybody is your actual friend, but to be able to think about how each of those people's lives had intersected with my own and then to say something kind, to kind of cut through all the other noise they might be hearing in their own heads and in their own lives, that was important to me. So that's a, that's a snippet of my journey. I love that snippet. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I feel like I think what you just said very much aligns with a lot of the sort of hashtag be kind movements. But I I often wonder, you know, like if those hashtags don't really mean anything if you don't put action to it. Right. So thanks for helping me plan what I'm doing on on Valentine's Day <laughs> is to also have those snippets um, for my friends and pocket friends is how I call some of my friends on social media. Um, I, I love those tiny moments. And, 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 you know, speaking of Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day and even Gal Valentines carry these gendered connotations. How do you think we can celebrate Valentines in a more encompassing way? I think a great way is to go back in your own mind to maybe what Valentine's Day was when you were in like grade school. And I, the reason I bring that up is because I think about in those early years when we were buying those little foldable cards and, uh, you know, the ones with like kittens or Disney figures on it. And a lot of those were just platonic messages um, that were basically, I'm happy you're here. You're a great person. And so I think what we do is we start by loving the people around us in our communities and loving them in specific ways. Um, you really think about you as a person um, and, and what you what you delight in. And then share that delight with others. I know one year too, just as another example, um, I'm I'm into, I think it's called, it can be called erasure poetry or blackout poetry. It's kind of where you take something that's already been written and you find some of the words that you want to use in that piece. Maybe it's like a newspaper article and then you get rid of all the other words. Um, and so I knew that poetry brought me joy and I was able to just be like, all right, let me let me share a little bit about what brings me joy. Um, I don't know. There's so many ways we can. I, I, I'm such a big believer in flexible traditions. So these traditions that aren't like I have to do this every year, but just something that brings you a lot of joy that you can do 
on days like Valentine's Day. And you can be the one who widens out. Like, who, who in your community needs this, um, this love? Obviously everyone, but, you know, you might decide in specific years who you want to, um, yeah, specifically share the love with. Well, I love, as we have been talking about love this entire time, but I love that you mentioned flexible traditions because we have talked about that in this show with various holidays that you can make it what you want to be and it can be as joyful as you would like to be. And, um, you know, we, we mentioned love a lot just now and we use the word love in a lot of different <laughs> contexts. How can we distinguish our expressions of those many loves, you think? Mm, that is a great question. I think um, what comes to mind is hmm, I really like the idea of um, not only saying the word, you know, but but putting action to it. I mean, I think we probably all had the experience of experiencing a loving act or, you know, maybe someone invites you on a hike or someone um, invites you to coffee and you're experiencing love without the word even being exchanged. So I think it it is a lot less complex and, and maybe we don't always need to deeply distinguish because I, I think about, you know, the fact that so many, a couple different loves may be operating at the same time. I, I think about if, if you have a significant other, you might be experiencing both that romantic love and that platonic love of the friendship that you share as well. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. You've been hearing from Lindsay Wisher. She is a freelance writer who's been helping us break down misconceptions of what we know today as Valentine's Day. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show was produced by Katie Pellico and Anya Gradalski. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.